Of the weekend. Um, a couple announcements. Next Wednesday night will be different. We're gonna, uh, we normally what time we normally have supper? Five thirty. Normally we have supper at five thirty, and next week everything starts at six. And we won't have Bible study as such in here. We have pastor appreciation just. Uh, fellowship in the gymnasium. Pastor Greg will be back and we'll celebrate that too. And so next week at 6. Church is providing the meat. There's covered dish other than that. So bring something along. Come at 6. Um, and we'll enjoy each other's company. How about that? And yeah, I'm not going to pay for my supper next week. Um, and then also the um, a week from this Sunday, believe it or not, Operation Christmas Child. What happened to 2014? Where did it go? Um, but Operation Christmas Child in gathering. I hope you, does everybody have your box, our boxes, fill them up, uh, and get those ready. You can pick some up tonight if you don't have any, or any time next week. And then on um, November uh, November 23rd at, I think, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it's a Sunday afternoon, um, we'll have a special church-wide time together. We won't have home groups that night. We'll gather on that afternoon to have a fellowship together, but also to have an ordination service for John and Josh as new elders. So um, uh, plan on that Sunday before Thanksgiving. We'll come here at uh, 5 o'clock and um, celebrate that together as well and probably have some good food too. We'll let you know about the food and how we're going to do all that uh, in, a, uh, in a week or so. Or by Sunday maybe. I think that's everything. Jeff, you want to report on work day last Saturday? All right, I like quick. Yeah, that's Charlene couldn't make a report that quick. Oh, the oh no, I didn't. Great. What'd you cover them with? It's amazing what gets done when I leave town. Hmm. Those are the those are what we call the subs. Those big black speakers that you saw on the floor there, which is the the base speakers for the new sound system. And John made the holes bigger so we could put them in there under the stage. So thank you, John. But yeah, but they noticed when they were out. Believe me. It's Guy Fawkes Day. <laughs> we should be partying or something. <laughs> Does anybody know what Guy Fawkes Day is? Who knows? Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, we don't blow up the church or anything, but I just needed to mention that. There are, if you don't know, in the, Guy Faw- in the early um, 17th century, there are about 15 to 18 Catholics that wanted to assassinate the king so that England could become Catholic again instead of Protestant, and they failed in their attempt. There was this guy, I don't think he was very bright, although people say he was, he was but there was this guy guarding the gunpowder um, that they were going to blow up, I don't know, Buckingham Palace or something. I don't know. What were they going to blow up? Parliament. And... Um, and they caught him before all that took place. And so England celebrates Guy Fawkes Day because he was arrested. They burn him in effigy. And I know you're really interested in that. 
Also, we survived the election. I'll show you my Fanny Crosby, my favorite Fanny Crosby quote again. The election has passed. I am pierced at last. The locos have won the day. Now, I would have said that no matter what party won, because I think they're all locos. So. But I came across a wonderful Samuel Rutherford quote today. When authority, king, court, and churchmen oppose the truth, what other armor have we but prayer and faith? And so no matter who they are, we've got to pray for them. And um, pray for those locos. And um, trust that God will lead and guide their lives. Let's pray together before we start. Thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives, for bringing your church together tonight, for the fellowship around the table. Thank you for all that's taking place, even right now, with the children as they meet and gather and sing and hear your word. We pray your blessings on that time. We pray that you'll speak to us tonight. Encourage us. Edify us, Lord, sanctify us this evening that we might be empowered to go out and do your service tomorrow. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, This uh, past weekend, I visited New England. We had a wonderful time. And when a Southern Baptist pastor from South Carolina shows up in New England with some um, some non-committed Congregationalists and non-church people. Period. They're really, really curious. Um, they. They start talking to you like they want to ask you, do you all handle snakes at your church? Or, um, I don't think there's that question in their minds, but you get a lot of questions. And um, so I'm sitting there with a man by the name of Ted uh, in his house and where we're staying and uh, <clears throat> watching the Denver Broncos and the New England Patriots Sunday night. First question out of, his, out of his mouth. So how long are your sermons? <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe he would ask something else first. But, I mean, we talked about other things over the weekend. But that was his first question specifically about what I do. And I told him they could be 45 minutes and up. Now, you don't laugh. And um, uh, his eyes kind of got big. And you realize in conversations like that, that um, that's such a strange phenomenon that this idea of expository preaching um, is unheard of, even in most of America. And um, he was really curious about that. Then we went to church. we had gone to church Sunday morning. Went to First Baptist Church Kittery, like I told you, a couple of weeks we were going to go, and that was just a wonderful experience. Their musician was out sick, so Judy ended up being their musician um, Sunday, and that was a fun time. Um, <clears throat> that pastor preached, uh, he's very, very young, he, uh, just out of seminary, I get the impression, uh, a topical sermon only because, uh, on prayer, only because he's doing you know, a series on what it means to be a church member, kind of like what we did nine marks when we went through a, a topical series for a while, um, But it wasn't expository, although his hero is Charles Spurgeon, so he'll figure it out. He's young. 
But my definition, when um, when asked uh, by Ted, um, what do I mean? I use the word expositor. I probably shouldn't have, uh, but I use that word. And so uh, my definition to what I do to try to boil it down as easy as I could was I just I, I just said that our church is convinced that exposing God's word trumps my opinion. Now, I thought, really, only on Wednesday night could I put my name on the screen. So that's... <laughs> I could have said that without a slide, but I thought, it would, wouldn't it be cool to see your name on the screen? James Montgomery Boyce. John MacArthur. Frank Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> but exposing what God has said in his word trumps my own opinion. Now, th- th- you know, that's my simplest definition of expositional preaching. And we're exposing what God has said to us. Now, sadly, in my definition, I use the word trump, which comes out of playing cards. And so that probably is not a real good definition uh, for Baptists. Who remembers when we couldn't play cards? Yeah, okay. Um, glad we outgrew that. Not that I play cards. I don't play cards. But um, so that was my definition to it. Maybe there's a better answer for that. Um, but through that conversation um, and knowing by Sunday night while I'm watching that football game that I'm going to be teaching tonight, I'm thinking about what am I going to do? Um and I tried to get Judy to tell me what to do, and she wouldn't. And so, I, you know, I had to come up uh, with it my, myself. But I did uh, read uh, last week uh, an article that was uh, very helpful in explaining why preaching Scripture is so vitally important to the church, especially now, this time we live in. I'm going to meet sometime next week. I'm going to meet with a Romanian pastor that's visiting here in town and talk about what, uh, maybe giving some advice. Maybe he can give me some advice. You know, how do you grow a church or what, 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 what draws people? And, and the only thing that I want to say to him is that the Word is the only thing that's sufficient for, for the pulpit. So reading this article, thinking about doing this tonight, I want to share some thoughts with you that um, I think will be helpful and uh, are important for all of us to consider. Now, much of what I say tonight will not be from Cone. Uh, but will be from Steve Lawson, who wrote this article or preached this message at some point. He's a fellow Baptist and uh, wrote this article on why preaching the Word is so vital in our day and age. And the main reason is because the church is at a crossroads. And I'm really thinking about the American church right now. We're at a crossroads, a real crossroads. And we have a choice. We, some churches can can continue the uh, liberal path of straying away from the truth and just face lead people to damnation. Uh, or we can, hang, we can hang on with all our might to the historic orthodox truths of Scripture, of the Christian faith, and provide life for people. So we only have two choices. Uh, in the church today. Tragically, most of the mainline denominations are being lured into this broad path of destruction, the wide road uh, that leads to destruction. And that road is marked with unbelief. That road is marked with apostasy. And, uh, and apostasy is, is nothing but just straying away from the truth. And as a result, we're witnessing the decline 
and the death of many denominations, the decline and death of their seminaries, decline and death of many missions, agencies, and many ministries because they're choosing that wide path in order to reach those people who are seeking. That's just a brief picture of what that wide path will look like. Your wide path is you water down your message so much so that you can reach the most people and you lead all those people into false conversions. But I want to focus tonight on the narrow path. What it means for us to grab hold of and embrace scriptural truth. To embrace the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. And we can, we can praise God that there are many, many places uh, existing today where there's this renewed commitment to the authority of Scripture, to the fundamental belief that, that, that the saving work of Jesus Christ is all that's necessary uh, for there to be hope in people's lives today. And among this faithful remnant of people that are going down, that have chosen this narrow path, there are many new churches and there are many new ministries that are being raised up, and God is using them to carry forward the banner of truth. And we hope and pray Grace on the Ashley is one of those ministries. But for those who hold strongly to biblical inerrancy and sovereign grace, there's another important issue that needs to be addressed, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. What does that mean? We talk about sola scriptura. We talk about that. It's a crucial issue. We... we, we, we talk about this being a divinely inspired book. We talk about this being God's Word. Um, we talk about it being sufficient for everything. And then we wonder, when we start thinking about it, what is it capable of doing? What is this Word capable of accomplishing? And when we ask those questions, it seems to confuse people. Well, I don't know. There's a problem in the evangelical church in dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. We can handle, we can handle saying that Jesus is sovereign. We can handle um, saying that the, the Bible is divinely inspired. There is a problem in the evangelical church in dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce, he was the pastor of Tenth Press in um, Philadelphia for many, many years. He observed that while churches confess belief in biblical authority, they're still undecided, he says, whether the Bible is sufficient for the church's life and work. We confess its authority, but we discount its ability to do what is necessary to draw unbelievers to Christ, enable us to grow in godliness, provide direction for our lives, and transform and revitalize society. And so as a result of that particular problem, the church today, the evangelical church has chosen that narrow path is still using things like they're adding entertainment to that, exposit, that exposition or, or adding performances with their preaching. You don't see us perform, I don't think. Or theatrics to their theology, Boyce would say. With great insight, he adds, In the 16th century, the battle was against those who wanted to add church traditions to Scripture. But in our day, the battle is against those who have to use worldly means to do God's work. 
he argues the sufficiency of Scripture is the urgent issue of the day that must be addressed in the evangelical church. And by sufficiency of Scripture, what we mean is the ability of God's Word to produce any and all spiritual results intended by God when it is accompanied by the supreme power of the Holy Spirit. And by that particular definition, that position, it does not mean that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. It doesn't imply that everything Jesus or the apostles ever taught is preserved in Scripture. That's not what it means. And we've got passages that remind us of this. John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John 21, 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So not every truth do we have in the words of Scripture, but we have everything. It is sufficient. We have everything that God intends for us to have to accomplish what God intends to accomplish. All in in that book. It affirms everything necessary for the spiritual well-being of individuals, both in salvation and sanctification. It provides everything necessary for direction in gospel ministry. Every, all of that is found in the Word of God. The, Western, the Westminster Confession defines the sufficiency of Scripture as the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, until which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. It's a wonderful definition. Somewhere at the bottom of that slide is men. Do you all have it? No. So, those who, what they call the Westminster Divines, those who wrote this confession, understood that Scripture provided what? All things necessary for a believer to live the Christian life in a way that is going to be pleasing to God. It is sufficient for our ministry as well, all of your ministries as well. This is the time-tested position of evangelical churches for 350 years. For some reason, beginning in the 20th century, we decided that there was a better way. And this time, there's a departure of that stance, which is 350 years old and older. Nowhere is this lost confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture more clearly seen than in the pulpits of today. Now, I start talking about the pulpit, and you think to yourself, Phew, I'm off the hook. Now, you're responsible for what comes from your pulpit. Biblical preaching has pretty much been crowded out of the life of the contemporary church. And what's been put in its place are just tactics for church growth. Now, these comments about church growth may seem a bit dated, uh, because we've been fighting that issue since the church growth movement of the early 80s, late 70s. Um, But sad to say, it, it, it became so entrenched in the evangelical church in America. And then um, when, when the Iron Curtain fell, um, we exported all our seeker-friendliness to other countries, mainly in Eastern Europe. Sad to say, the pulpit almost seems to be in a 
in the way of the modern church today that we're giving way to Satan's desire to reach as many false conversions as possible. The pulpit has become something else. We were talking this weekend, I don't don't know who you were talking with, um, but talking about, as a preacher, I deal with people who get married. Maybe you don't. Um, But it's interesting that today, just in, I don't know, the last 20 years, that the, the, the event... The party celebration of a marriage is, is the priority. The, the, the ceremony itself, the worship service that takes place, is secondary. In fact, you find now somebody who gets paid big bucks to be called a wedding coordinator, and they know nothing about a wedding ceremony. But they know what color tablecloths you should have. And so we've watered down the pulpit in a lot of ways. Worship styles, marketing strategies, all those things have taken priority over solid commitment to straightforward biblical exposition. Our preaching has become man-centered, um, it's been overrun with doses of cultural wisdom. Um, we give we we like to give therapeutic advice in our messages, psychobabble, pragmatism, all, you know, all those things, political agendas on some pulpits. And you mix all those things together, some cute little personal illustrations, and that's a sermon today. And this, it's been a slow shift, and it can only be described as a complete collapse to a commitment to God's Word. So the crisis that confronts Bible-believing churches and ministries, organizations, whether they realize it or not, is this matter the sufficiency of Scripture that it started out talking about. We've got to ask the question, a couple of questions we need to ask. Is the Word of God capable of performing all that is necessary to fulfill God's purposes in the church? If so, then you preach the Word. If not, if it's not capable of performing all that's necessary to fulfill God's purposes in the church, then we've got to come up with something else. And that's movie clips and a lot of jokes and all those other things I mentioned earlier. Pragmatism, therapeutic advice, psychobabble, cultural wisdom. Here's another way to say that question. When preached in the full conviction of the Holy Spirit, what power does Scripture possess? Well, if, it's, if Scripture is all-sufficient, then it should be delivered in, a, in the way that God intended it to be delivered. And the way you deliver Scripture, if it is sufficient, is where it would seem foolish to the world. First Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. That's God's description of what John Settlemeyer did Sunday. Foolishness to the rest of the world. But if God's Word is not sufficient, then we understand why it's so easy for pastors to, so many pastors, to find alternative means to supplement what's lacking in their ministries. Not until we 
all of us, not just pastors, are persuaded. Not until we're persuaded of the sovereign authority of Scripture and its supernatural ability to will and work all God's good pleasure will we preach the word with utter abandonment. Lawson says, with red-hot passion, with audacious boldness. So, let's look at the Scriptures again. Um, with what time we've left, with three points that might be helpful to you. I, I, I meant to print I had a sheet to print out and give you, and then I didn't do it. Sorry about that. But you're smart. You can remember three things, right? First, Scripture possesses divine power to convict human hearts. Exposing sin, revealing a person's true need for grace. Sovereign grace. Convict. Um, that word convict uh, refers to a judicial act. Indicting someone who's broken the law with a view towards sentencing that person. That's what Scripture does. It convicts. You get convicted when you read Scripture? Do you? Two of you do. It's a courtroom scene. The guilty are accused before the judge, and they're condemned by the judge. And so that's the ministry of the Word of God. Preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the Word brings a supernatural power of conviction on a guilty soul. Consequentially, the need for salvation is exposed. It's made known to that convicted heart. So we have that in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is live, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's alive, full of life. And that, 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 that word zon, that Greek word, means divine life, supernatural life, the very life of God itself. So the, the Word of God is alive. The Word of God has the life of God in it. Every other book is a dead book. Every other book has no life in it but not the Word of God, not the Bible. It's always alive. It's always relevant. It's never stagnant. Life keeps going. It's never stagnant. Martin Luther said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It's alive and active, according to the Hebrews text. That word active just means energies or energetic. It literally is the same word that we get our English word energy from. And we say that, we say when the Scripture is preached, it is always energetic, it is always working, it is always executing God's sovereign purposes. So if you're sitting in front of a preacher who is exposing God's Word to you, and you're thinking to yourself, well, he's not making this interesting enough, or this really is boring, then you're not receiving the energy that comes from the Word of God. God God's Word is not speaking to you, and that's not the preacher's fault. What's going on in you? That's where the point where conviction comes. God said in Isaiah 55:11, "So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth; it shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner 
for which I sent it. Isn't that the greatest promise? For all of us who have wayward children, isn't that the greatest promise? (laughs) Wherever God's Word goes forth, it is always working to accomplish God's will. It never fails to succeed in the work for which it is attended. You got that? It never fails to succeed in the work for which it is intended. It is always, always, God's Word is always capable to fulfill God's eternal purposes in the world. Sharper than any two-edged sword. That's sharp. Incredibly sharp. It, cut, it, it can cut deeply into the human soul. And two-edged means it has the ability to cut both ways. Pretty efficient, too. The sword is the spirit. Able to build up and tear down, comfort and afflict, harden and soften, save and damn. Charles Spurgeon said, of this divine dagger, all edge, no blunt side. So, when God's Word is proclaimed, um, it doesn't just provide scrapes. Then just scratches. They're not just flesh wounds. God's word penetrates deeply into the facade of a person's life. And it cuts all the way to what Hebrews say? Cuts all the way to the joints and marrow. Pretty deep. The Bible is able to reveal the the depths of our depravity. It doesn't just scratch us and make us feel, oh, I need to be better tomorrow. No. It cuts deep. Reveals the depravity of the human heart and the need for saving grace. There's no worldly message. There's no conventional wisdom that can do this. That's why I said in the cone definition at the beginning that it trumps my own opinion. Because my own opinion is not sharp and it won't cut deep into your heart. But the promise is God's Word will. It's razor sharp. Penetrating into the recesses of the soul. It doesn't just stroke our felt needs. Now, here's what the Word is so sharp. You talk about people preaching to your felt needs. The Word word of God is so sharp, it penetrates directly to your unfelt needs. And it hurts. Exposing the heart for what it really is. Desperately sick. Jeremiah tells us that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The unfelt, your unfelt needs remain covered up until something probes it. Until it's provoked by Scripture. Kent Hughes says, God's word cuts through our hard-shelled souls like a hot knife through butter. Nothing else compares to God's power to convict the human soul than this two-edged sword of his word. In this superficial age we live in, we get these... um, these fake messages from pulpits. False, painful messages to listen to. 
we have, compared to those synthetic messages of the age that we live in today, we have God's Word which is able to slice straight to the bone, joint and marrow. The power of the Word leaves us exposed and convicted. And with the confidence of Scripture, John Calvin wrote, There is nothing so hard or firm in a man, nothing so deeply hidden, that the efficacy of the word does not penetrate through it. And when, you, and when it's handled properly, and I'm not suggesting that the word is always handled properly here in our church, at least from my end. There are times I fail as well doing that. But when handled properly, God's Word is the most powerful cutting instrument in the world. It's a sharp scalpel. Slash the human heart. Convict us of our sin. Expose our sinfulness and our depravity. Why preach anything else? To re- that w- that w- why preach anything else to try to reveal our need of Christ when that's the only thing that will? So, that has the power to convict. Secondly, this has the power to convert. No one can be saved apart from hearing and heeding the word of God. You get that? So we talk about, you know, our witnessing. I think I mentioned this um, a couple of weeks ago. We talk about in our witnessing how important our story is. It is important for people to understand that God's Word changed your life. It's, it is important that God's Word had the power to turn you around. But your story is not enough. In your witnessing, only the Word can save a soul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, it's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew, Jew first and also us, us Greeks. A bunch of pagans. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus said. That God's Word brings the kingdom of God to those born as aliens, those who are estranged from Him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.23, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. It has the power to convert. That is, the imperishable seed, God's Word, contains the life of God. You get that? It's alive, the writer of Hebrews told us, and, 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 and it contains the life of God that can be placed in the lost sinner who can be born again. It, can, it contains divine life. The, the, the sovereign working of God's Holy Spirit, the Bible is able to generate the new birth in us, which we've seen in, in the first part of John 3. Create the new birth in those of us who are spiritually dead. That's what the Word is able to do. Secular philosophy can't do that. Uh, human ideology can't do that. God's Word contains supernatural life. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Think back to that. Think back to Acts 2. Peter's addressing thousands who gathered on the day. And what is Peter doing? He's preaching the Word of God. He doesn't have anything else to preach. He doesn't have the internet where he can go get a fake sermon, 
preach it that day. All he has is the word to preach. And so he preaches Joel chapter 2, a few verses there. Explain who the Lord is. He quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110. It's a powerful presentation of the Word of God. And how God's Word had the power to convert. How God's Word has the power to save souls. And that crowd was what? They were cut to the heart. They were stabbed as with a knife. As with a two-edged sword. They said, brothers, what should we do? Peter says, repent. Be saved from this perverse generation. And what was the result of him preaching the word? 3,000 souls were saved. All sufficient power of Scripture to convert No entertainment from Peter. Just exposition. The word is abiding. Able to perform a lasting work. That's a wonderful word we see in that verse. It's abiding. That means it's able to do a lasting work in a soul that can't be undone. The wonderful promise. The conversion that Scripture produces is not just a passing fancy. It's not just, it's not going to change somebody's life for a few days and then they're going to go back. It lasts for all eternity. And that verse says, the power of God unto salvation. What we have today is that there's The reason that we see throughout our nation um, all these feel-good sermons from the pulpit is because people have lost confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And when we lose confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture, our, our evangelism just... Goes by the wayside. Preachers today would preach scripture saturated messages, then the false conversions that are so prevalent in the church today would just would be reduced tremendously. Religious thoughts and emotional appeals and cute little illustrations and heart tugging stories all absent from the Word of God, are going to stir emotions for the moment, but have no lasting effect and cannot save a soul for eternity. Donald Gray Barnhouse talked about the power of the Word to convert the interrelationship of faith, the hearing of the Word of God, are at the heart of the whole process of transforming an individual from a child of wrath into a child of God is by the transforming power of the Word, faith laying hold on the Word, that a man ceases to be a child of disobedience and becomes a child of obedient faith. We saw, we see in Romans 10 that the Word can engender the place faith in a human heart. See in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Word can bring saving faith to the one who hears the Word. Paul talks about the sacred writings able to make us wise for salvation. He's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There can be no true saving faith in Christ until His Word is clearly and forcefully proclaimed. So why would we want to preach anything else in order to convert people?
Well, power to convict and power to convert last. Sufficiency of Scripture is seen as power to conform a believer to the image of Jesus Christ. Power to conform. It's the sanctifying work of the Word. That's what sets apart all disciples of Jesus Christ from, uh, from the passions of the world. Um, that's what separates us from the pollution of, of sinfulness. It's what separates us from disobedience. The Word of God cleanses the soul so that soul won't be polluted. It won't be dark. Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify her, talking about the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word cleanses us. In that high priestly prayer, which we'll get to eventually in John 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart. Set apart from the corrupting power of sin. Separated for um, purity, cleansing. Separated for holiness. So when Christ prays for his disciples, he understood that spiritual growth into godliness is realized by the power of the word working in one's life. How does he know that? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It has the power to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Peter emphasized the ordinary means for sanctification through the word priest in 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. This means the Word feeds the believer. This means the Word fuels the believer. It nourishes them. And the Word stimulates our spiritual growth in the Christian maturity and in Christian ministry. To preach anything else in the Bible is just junk food. To preach anything else in the Bible is just a Big Mac. And that sort of diet, what does that do? Clogs the arteries. Relating it to the Word, it stunts our growth. Confines us to a state of malnutrition. You don't know how many funerals I go to and do for stirs for people who don't have a pastor, which the reason I do it is because chances are they don't have a church. Uh, And that's proven true for 99.9% of those funerals that I go down there and do. But they'll say they they go to church. And just to hear them talk, you realize how malnourished they are. And dying in their sin. Only Scripture as our daily food can cause us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's why it's a priority here. That's why it's important for us to make it a priority here. Your salvation, your development, your, your, um, uh, your elders are responsible for your souls. But I would hate to bear the weight of preaching feel-good messages 
And going to Hebrews 13, verse 17, and trying to explain that before the Father on the last day. When so many believers are spiritually underfed, is it any wonder that their spiritual growth is stunted? It's important we renew our commitment to a full feast of the Scripture. If congregations are to mature, then we must bring to our congregations consistent biblical preaching. Why preach anything else to grow believers? So in light of all this, there are other points we can make. But in light of all this, the question must be asked, what does it matter if there is belief in the inerrancy of Scripture without confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture? You get that? What does it matter if there is belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, which Baptist, you know, Southern Baptist, that's a whole big thing for us. The Bible's inerrant, right? There's not an error there. No mistake in Scripture. What does it matter if we have that particular belief in inerrancy without confidence that it's sufficient to do all those things? Convict, conform, convert. The answer is none. Believing in the sufficiency of the Bible is as necessary as affirming that it's inerrant. Those, those two things go hand in hand when we talk about preaching from the pulpit especially. But that's true in your own everyday life too with regard to evangelism and other things as well. Scripture is all sufficient to equip the man of God, the woman of God entirely for the work of ministry that God has called you to do. Spurgeon believed it. He said, If I did not believe in the infallibility of Scripture, the absolute infallibility of it from cover to cover, I would never enter this pulpit again. Preachers and churches today must be fully persuaded of both the purity and the power of Scripture. Persuaded like Martin Luther, who trusted the outcome of his ministry, the supernatural ability of Scripture to perform its sacred task. Somebody asked Luther once to explain the phenomenon of the Reformation. This is what he said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And when, while I slept, The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. May it be so in grace and the Ashley and in your life as well. Amen. Let's stand and pray. John Owens is here. John's having surgery tomorrow. We need to pray for John as well. Some of you guys gather around John while we have prayer. If you would. And see him hiding back there. I'll tell you what, just why just whoever's led to pray for John, go right ahead and I'll close. God, we thank you for John and uh, his ministry to all of us. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, prepare him for tomorrow. We 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 pray for the surgeon, the nurses, doctors who take care of him tomorrow, that they'll get a good night's rest, that they'll um, do exactly what they're supposed to do, and and uh, that you, his recovery will be quick, Lord. Uh, there'll be a period of time he can't drive as he recovers and things like that. We pray you're just giving patience through that recovery period and strengthen him and heal his body. We thank you for the bodies you created, Lord. We thank you, too, for the body of Christ that's gathered here, able to pray for John, able to spend this time uh, together tonight. 
able to prepare uh, our hearts even for Sunday's proclamation of this all-sufficient word we've talked about tonight. Lord, do your work in our lives and our hearts as we leave this place. Keep us safe. Father, give us a good night's rest. Help us wake up refreshed, ready to serve you another day. And for your glory, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.